I texted CC when he first went down. I told him, I said, look, you know, I got Mike Piazza out in the World Series in 2000 with a broke dick everything. <laughs> everything on, on my body hurt. And that's exactly what I told him. And... So, <laughs> I was waiting for it to come out, Cody. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and that's, you know, and I think he appreciated that. What's up, everybody? We are back. Another episode of R2C2, another Thursday. And um, that usually would be CeCe's line, but he has decided not to record during the playoffs. This is what we've done the last three years uh, because, you know, he's locked into trying to get uh, himself his second ring and the Yankees their 28th. But this year, instead of just shutting it down, we have the outstanding honor of chatting with one of my colleagues who's stepping in for CeCe, a man who CeCe says, you know, I think Coney and I are probably real similar as ballplayers and who's been a guest on R2C2, and I just revealed who it is. And that is David Cohn. Thanks for doing this with us, David. My pleasure. I'm glad you're keeping it going. I know, right? Like it felt it felt weird to shut it down in the middle of the playoffs, you know? So but we had to find the right co-host. And thanks to you, we have that. So thank you, man. Yeah, well, thanks for having it close to where I live. So I only had to walk like four <laughs> blocks to get here. I know. And um I know, you know, when you come on R2C2, we all have our ears perked up for manscaping stories and the like. So, you know, we're all ready to go. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to, you know, that, that was my first time on a podcast and I, I, I got a little geeked out. I got to admit it. I like you can you can say things on here. You can really, you know, so I'm, I'm a little more reserved. This is my second go round. You don't have to center yourself. Right. Yeah. Quite as much in a podcast, but maybe this time you'll center yourself more. Right. David, we, you know, you and I got to spend a lot of time together this summer, uh, which was great. And we did that series in Minnesota uh, between the Yankees and the Twins at the end of July, which was just a fascinating regular season series. It felt like arena baseball going back and forth. Because of that series and seeing the Twins lineup up close, I I thought the Yankees would win this series because I did think there was a significant edge in the pitching. But I did think we would get some 9-7, 10-8 games. Instead, that was pretty much complete and utter domination from the Yankees were you surprised at all the way it played out yes you know I'm with you I thought uh, Minnesota was going to provide a strong challenge and uh, I think the fact that the first two games and home field advantage being a big deal especially in a five-game series really really had an effect on Minnesota the Yankees got on top of them the first game the second game especially when the Twins decided to run out a rookie and Dobnak Dobnak you know and start that two that, that number two game for Minnesota I thought was questionable uh put hit put that kid under a lot of stress and the Yankees jumped all over them and and did, you know once they got on top of Minnesota that put a lot of pressure on game three at home and you know even though I thought Minnesota in some respects had some unfortunate events happen in game three they swung the bat very well in game yeah. three if you look at their expected batting average and their quality of contact they really actually didn't get much to show for it. they had a little bit of a bad fortune I think in game three you know it's when the Yankee lineup it was at its or is at its best. It it sort of looks like it did in these playoffs so far, right? And or it did in the ALDS, where it just felt like they weren't leaving the zone at all. And I remember watching the first game of the year this season when we were thinking about this vaunted offense. It was against the Orioles, so obviously it was a huge grain of salt, and they ended up not playing well in the series. But that first game, you're watching how disciplined they are, and you're like, oh my gosh, like how do you get through this lineup? That's how I felt watching them against the Twins. It felt like. I mean, basically, and by the time Game 3 came around, almost every single hitter was having quality at-bats. It just felt like it'd be such a chore to try and get through them when they're that disciplined. Yeah, I mean, the over, that's exactly right. And the bottom of the lineup, you know, when you have Glaber Torres, who I think is a superstar, batting <laughs> sixth. I mean, that, that wouldn't be my preference if I were the manager making out the lineup, but I certainly understand they have more information or privy to more more things than I am, but... The bottom of the order was just devastating uh, for the Yankees. So it really was a circular lineup that that put constant stress all over the opposing pitchers. And once they got on top of you, oh, they they just seemed to know what to do. They they knew how to to take advantage of that momentum. Um, you know, there's an innate feeling that you get on the bench that you know that that pass the baton mentality of grind it out, take the walk, let the next guy do it. I mean, that really is a contagious feeling on a bench, and I've seen it work. I saw it work in the 90s with some of those lineups, but 
this lineup is so deep. Uh, there, there is no rest for any pitcher. It, it's interesting, the construction of it, too, right? Because I think when we all saw the Game 1 lineup, and we see Gardner hitting third, and then we see Torres sixth, and Sanchez seventh, we think, wow, this is not what I was expecting. Then the way they performed in Game 1, you thought, okay, well, they're probably going to keep it the same, but... What do you think about – I mean, it's clear they, they, for some reason, analytically or whatever, they like having a lefty in that three spot, right? We saw it the whole last month of the regular season, basically, if not more. What do you think about the way that they have it currently constructed? Well, I understand because Brett Gardner's numbers against right-handed pitching are, are off the charts. I mean, if you would have thought that Brett Gardner would have a slugging percentage higher than Manny Machado and on par, really was better than Bryce Harper's for the majority of the year. And against right-handed pitching, it's even higher. It's well up above 500 on a slugging percentage rate. So, yeah, I understand that. Gardner's been deadly against right-handed pitching, especially in Yankee Stadium because his power is pole power. And that plays so well, obviously, with the short porch. Uh, against le- a left-handed pitcher, that, that might change. Mm. I'm not sure. We'll have to see who the matchups are going down the stretch. And uh, I don't see Brett Gardner batting left hand- or batting third against a left-handed starter. Yeah, the, it's it, right. Then it might change a little bit. It's interesting, right? Because like, if you were just going to say your top three hitters, you'd probably be going LeMayhew, Judge, Torres, right, in the three spot. And there's something to the feeling of having to like get through all of them in a row but then there's also something about what you were talking about before, the bottom of the order being so good. The fact that, like, I mean, I don't know. If you're on that mound, is it a real thing if you find places to land, if there's spots where you can exhale versus if there's not? Like, if, if you're out there and all of a sudden, you know, you get through the heart of the order, but, oh, my gosh, I have Torres, Sanchez, and Didi now. Like, is that something you really feel on the mound if you're a pitcher? You definitely do. And, you know, especially, you know, that's one of the reasons why – I'm uh, pro DH because in the National League, you know, you talk about the pitcher hitting. The pitcher, it's not just the ninth spot. It's the eighth spot that gets affected too. So really the fact that the pitcher has to bat affects two different spots in the order. And those are always spots you look for as a landing spot, as you said, or pitch around this guy, get to that guy. Uh, in the in the Yankees lineup, there is none of that. So, yeah, it is a valid point. And I always pitch that way of – well, there's a right-handed there's a right-handed batter on deck that chases sliders. Uh, I'm probably gonna walk this left-handed batter yeah. <laughs> in front of him or somebody that I'm having trouble with. Or if I fall behind in the count, I'm not going to give in. I'm gonna just, you know, uh, check check him and go to the next guy. You know, with the lineup, obviously Torres shined. We saw that. I mean, he was he was incredible. I also thought, you know, one of the guys who's gonna have a microscope on him in these playoffs is Stanton. Obviously, after he struggled last year against the Red Sox and. You know, he's the one hired gun in the group, right? So he has a different magnifying glass on him when it comes to this time of year. I thought for the most part he had really good at-bats. Like, the p- pitches he—we've uh, seen him chase in the past. I thought he took some nasty off-speed stuff from right-handers that he was basically spitting on and saying, all right, you know what, I'll take my walks. Now, he had the one three zero pitch he swung at and dribbled out, and he had the double play with bases loaded. But to me, he looked— more discipline at the plate, and I think that bodes well from him. It, do you feel? Did you feel like you saw a, a different sort of, I don't know, tenor of a bat from him compared to what we've seen in the past from Stanton? I agree. I, I think he was disciplined uh, and also understood how they were trying to approach him, and that mm. was the that was the thing. Is you know. Um, whether or not he's at full strength, or whether or not he's had enough at bats to be on top of his game, opposing pitchers still fear him. They still pitch him very carefully, and that became apparent uh, the way the Twins approached him from really the first game, the first at bat. Is that, uh oh, Stanton's in there. If I make one mistake, he's going <laughs> to hit it nine miles. So, yeah, that's what I saw. I saw the fear and the approach of opposing pitchers as much as as when he was an MVP two years ago. What did you see from Urshela's at bats in the ALDS? Uh, yeah, that's one of the things we, you know, we watched him down the stretch and, you know, you, you, with all the injuries, you wonder about guys, whether it was Voight and his injury, is he fully healthy? And Gio Rochella had a growing injury and then came back and are these guys a hundred percent or not? And it looked like he started to drive the ball again, you know, and watching his batting practice at home, he looked like he had his bat speed back. And that was the thing about Gio all year long that we all said, wow, this guy's got some pop. He's really driving the baseball the other way, gap to gap. Home run pop, he had he had really excellent bat speed, and it looks like that came back. You know, especially uh, in the second game. You know the the interesting things that are sort of you know up for grabs at this moment. 
when it comes to the lineup and moving forward. And we're recording on Wednesday night. This releases Thursday morning because R2C2 comes out every Thursday, as our audience knows. But is what could happen with Hicks. I don't think anybody thought Aaron Hicks was a possibility in these playoffs. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's working out in Tampa and he's speaking to, you know, the media and he says, oh, I'm ready to go. And, it, you know, there have not, at least as of this moment, been any um, definite decisions made that have been made public. But it sounds like, reading the tea leaves, that there's a real possibility he could be on this roster. If he is, I mean, how do you see him fitting in for a guy who hasn't played in a game since August 4th? Yeah, that's tricky. Uh you know, who knows how he's looked in Tampa or if he's fully healthy. I know they're going to get a look at him and some workouts here this week. They've got uh, a few days to do that now. Um, you know, theoretically, he would replace uh, Cameron Mabin on the roster. You know, just one for one, one outfielder for another outfielder. And whether or not he starts or not, certainly from a defensive standpoint, late in the games, Mabin has been replacing Giancarlo Stanton uh, for defensive purposes. So you could argue that instead of Mabin, you'd have – you know, the ability to use Hicks in center and Gardner in left, and that is really good defensively late in games if you have a lead. So that that's a pretty strong argument. If Hicks can throw, if he's healthy, that's their best out defensive outfield. You know, nothing against Cameron Maven playing left field, but Gardner in left and yeah. Hicks in center. We saw that play you made in Minnesota. <laughs> they made a T-shirt on and your call on that play, which is incredible, both the call and the play. And so, yeah, yeah, I could see that. I don't know about throwing him in the starting lineup in the leadoff hole or somewhere in that lineup right away. Um, maybe you'd want to see something, you know, against him. But he is a switch hitter. He does give you another left-handed bat. Uh, but defensively late in games, which is what Cameron Mabin's role is right now, you can make a strong argument that Gardner and Hicks in the game with a lead late gives you the best chance to have – you know, defensive coverage in the outfield. That's what's so, that's what's so interesting, right? His the defense, and then think about if I mean if you have Urshela at third with Didi and Glaber up the middle, and then Lemayhu at first, and then that outfield, you know, with Hicks in center, Gardner in left, Judge in right, Sanchez, who I thought caught his ass off in that series yeah. against Minnesota. All of a sudden, that's a I mean. That's a really good defensive team to put out there late in games. That would be tempting to me to have Hicks for that reason. Even if you're, you know, a little worried about his rhythm offensively or his timing at this point, I would think if he's healthy enough to throw like he can throw and cover ground, that's for late in these games, especially we saw how quickly they went to Maben. I mean, they're going to Maben if they have the lead in the seventh inning. So right. I would think that Hicks would have a place then. He would have a place, and he, you know, he gives you versatility because of his ability to get on base. So when he, assuming he does come in for defense, and then suddenly the game is tied and you're in extra innings, and now you need a big at bat against a tough right handed reliever. Hicks might give you a chance to work that on-base percentage, and that's that's really his strength. And he gives you the versatility of not of being a switch hitter. And you you know it's nice to have another left-handed bat in there. I mean, the Yankees obviously are right-handed dominant, especially on the power side. So you know that balance is is something that's pretty attractive if he's healthy. Yeah, the, the right that's the big that's a big if. But if he is now, let me let me throw out one other roster composition question. Do you think there's any chance they could take Hicks instead of Voigt? And my logic for that would just be right now, you know, I maybe swung it pretty well at the end of the season after he had gone through that little gully following how well he had hit. And then obviously in his limited opportunities, he made an impact with the stolen bases and the homers against and the homer against Minnesota. But I'm just thinking like if Voigt is there a spot you'd choose Voigt's bat right now over Hicks or defensively? Are you better off just having another outfielder to play with if, let's say, you're, I don't know, you're you're going to your defense and a tough lefty comes in to face Gardner late in game? Is there any situation you pinch it for him and then it'd be good to have the extra outfielder? I'm I'm just I'm trying to think, is there a scenario where the game plays out where you actually are better off having both Maben and Hicks and Voigt is the one who's the odd man out? It's a it's a possibility, with you know, without a doubt. You know, once again, you know, Encarnacion is there, he's healthy, he's proved it. You know, Judge, Encarnacion, Edwin, Ar- you know, I mean, uh, obviously uh, Stanton. You know, you are a little right-handed dominant on the power side. And Maben does also give you speed. So in, in the case of 
maybe you use Tyler Wade and burn him, and then you get into an extra inning game and you need another pinch runner somewhere. Maben gives you that speed as well. He can steal a base. So, yeah, it's a valid point. You know, that's, uh, I'm sure that's what they're kicking around right now is, you know, off the top of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, straight up trade, uh, Hicks for Maben. Yeah. But maybe, uh, maybe Voigt does enter into, into, into that conversation at this point. The other interesting thing is that they played so well against Minnesota. There's got to be also some temptation to not mess with you know how everything was composed at least as the starting lineup goes probably doesn't I don't know if it shakes things up if you just put Hicks on you know either for Mabin or for Voight because obviously they're not starting but if all of a sudden Hicks is back and you're starting him you know now either because I, I don't think Gardner's sitting at this point the way he's playing right unless maybe it's a lefty but now all of a sudden Either Stanton or Urshela ends up on the bench in that scenario because you know Edwin's playing. And does that, you know, is that something you want to do coming off a series in which you look like world beaters? Yeah, when you look at it from the offensive side, you know, that's one thing. But from the defensive side, you know, we know that with LeMahieu at first and Urshela at third, that's their best defensive infield yeah. in that alignment. Now, that's not a knock against Void at first, even though. From the defensive metrics, uh, he ranked out towards the bottom of the of the list in, in the American League this year. And Edward Encarnacion, it was, you know, he, he's adequate there, but certainly not a Gold Glover at first base. So that's the that's the debate you have, right? As you you balance the offense versus the defensive alignment. And but I think versatility is one of the keys there. And who you're facing as a starting pitcher, whether it's a righty or a lefty, matters. But at this point. You know, and at the start of the season, Brett Gardner was going to be ticketed as your fourth outfielder and the versatile guy. He's not that anymore. Not right now. He's earned the right to be in that lineup every day. And, uh, you know, I, I would be shocked if, if he were not in that lineup every every game. I, I, I totally agree. And he also, I, there's just like an inherent trust in his quality of a bat, right? I mean, he's rarely is he going to go up there and look totally overmatched. He's going to grind. He's going to battle. You know, he's not going to leave the strike zone. And... I I say all of this, and I'm probably still underselling the fact that he also hit like a true slugger this year. You know, it's like it's almost hard to wrap your mind around. Oh yeah, by the way, as you talked about, he's destroyed right-handed pitching. You want that bat in the lineup against a right-handed pitcher? Yeah. Now the one caveat, obviously, with that being said, is maybe against a left-handed starter. You know, maybe you might think about juggling it maybe you know Gardner might not start in that situation depending on how good you felt about Aaron Hicks starting center field and batting right-handed David when you when you can remember kind of coming through series having this much time off in between but getting to set yourself up and and watching the other series go long. Is that a palpable advantage for the Yankees that they took care of their business the way that they did and now are in the position of watching the other teams, you know, the Rays and the Astros in this case, kind of beat themselves up for a little while? Yeah, you take it, you know, at this point. I mean, it's been a long year for the Yankees. Every extra day of rest uh, that comes their way is a positive you know, even with the oldest Chapman getting hit with a champagne oh gosh, bottle in his pitching hand. So. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so, so, yes, I mean, whatever. I mean, I don't think it's serious, but nonetheless, it's been that kind of year for the Yankees. Uh, a little more time for Edwin Encarnacion, a little more time for Stanton. Um, you know, down the list, Aaron Hicks now maybe in play. You got a few extra days to play with that. So, and from the pitching side as well, um, it, it allows you. And we know that the Yankee starters do well with extra rest. Paxton, Tanaka all do extremely well with extra rest. Uh, they're going to get it, and then you can line them up the way you want to line them up. So, yeah, it's a blessing for the Yankees at this point. Pitching-wise, what I'll take them one by one with the starters. What stood out to you about Paxton in his start in the ALDS? Uh, you know, the thing that stood out to me was is that he really seems to, you know, we talked about Paxton all year long. The first half was always about the first inning. You can tell right away with him. He gave up 12 home runs in the first inning on the year. It was always about getting out of the gates. And it looked like that was going to happen again a little bit, but he righted himself. And I think the fact that he now has, you know, his good curveball going. And, and he's got a couple of different breaking balls with his curveball and, and slider that he's got some weapons to get out of trouble now, and he used them to get out of trouble. So you know, I feel much better about him, especially early in the games, even though you know he gave up the hit against Polanco that tied the game 3-3. I still felt pretty good about the way he threw the ball. I still feel very good about him. 
And Tanaka, what can you say? I mean, following him up, or you know, maybe they switch it up. Maybe Tanaka starts a game one. It's a whole different ball game in a seven-game series because you know those guys are going to have to pitch twice. Hmm. In a five-game series, there's probably only one guy that's going to have to pitch twice unless you go short, wet rest like the Astros did with Verlander, and we saw how that works. So that's a dangerous proposition. But, you know, game one, game five, game two, game six, game three, game seven, generally speaking, in a seven-game series, that's how it's going to go. So... You know, who do you want pitching in a potential Game 7? Is that Severino starting Game 3 again? Do you line up Tanaka with a Game 3? You know, um, Game three's at home. Yeah. If it's against Houston. If it's against Tampa, then you've got home field advantage. So everything really hinges and swings on what happens in that Game 5 with Houston and, and Tampa at this point. Yeah, that – right, because from a rotation standpoint, if you – I mean, if you feel like, hey, we like Tanaka better at home – then if you're playing the Rays, he's probably starting two and six, I would think, right? Like where he's getting the two home starts. Right. But if you're starting in Houston, do you save him for a game three, even if you believe he may be your second best option? I don't know. That'd be an interesting that'd be an interesting quandary. I mean, what did you think of Severino and what I mean, obviously he made some huge pitches to get out of jams. Uh, how how has he looked to you, and how did he look to you against Minnesota? He's looked really good to me. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of remarkable. He's made some great adjustments. His changeup looks much better, even from two years ago when he was almost a Cy Young Award winner. Uh, he's got better shape to his breaking ball. It looks like he's mixing in more of a curveball now and a lower 80s-type breaking ball that has more shape. Uh, he's got a mid-80s kind of a slider that has more side-to-side movement. He's got a little more downward tilt and, and a, a slower-type breaking ball. I've been really impressed with the way he's been able to back off of that slider. And to me, in years past when he got in trouble, when he started to overthrow, it was usually that slider that he overthrew more. Yeah. He tried to throw it too hard. We saw him throw it 90, 91, 92 miles an hour at times when he overthrew it. I saw some breaking balls at 82, 83 miles an hour that the Twins were way out in front of. And it's very similar to Paxton in that regard that the – the variance in speed is so important in today's game because hitters are so geared up for velocity that if you can mix in a slower breaking ball, I think that is that is just a dynamite, a way to go. And Severino's shown that he can do that. For the first time, I think I've ever seen him in his career be able to back off of his breaking ball. He's doing that now, so I'm, I'm extremely encouraged. So would you, David, I mean, would you feel comfortable, hey, giving him a game two then and bumping Tanaka to three? If uh, I mean, maybe regardless of home and road, but especially if if – Three was home and two was road. Yeah, I would. You know, those, those three pitchers, I would be comfortable at any any position mm. at this point. I think you know, we, Severino's ready to take the next step and go to a hundred pitches, ninety to a hundred. He got up over eighty pitches in that start. I think he could have run out there for the fifth inning. That's how good he looked in the fourth inning. But Aaron Boone played it safe and and went went the bullpen route and. You know, almost came up a little short by using Adovino only one hitter and Tommy Canely only two outs. So, be interesting to see moving forward. You know how that works out. But I think Severino's ready to take the next step, get you close to 100 pitches, and if you can get five or six innings out of 100 pitches, then then he's almost at full strength. So this is so interesting to me, and this is something I wanted to dig in with with you because. The way Aaron Boone used the bullpen in the ALDS this year was almost a total flip from last year, right? He wasn't going to extend anybody past a little bit of discomfort with what was happening. I'd say the only circumstance you could argue maybe that happened was when he left Paxton in to face Polanco. And honestly, that was just a fantastic at-bat from Polanco. He wins the battle, right? But other than that... The first sign of faltering or a particular matchup you really liked, he was going to it. Adovino doesn't get Cruz out. Sorry, we want you know Green or Canely facing the lefty. You know, Canely is getting lefties out. Righty coming up. Sorry, we're going Adovino. I thought he managed the ALDS brilliantly, and it worked out perfectly. And it was a difference from last year. But I also thought because of the amount of games in a seven-game series, and because there was a chance you weren't going to get to the finish line a couple of times in this, you know, DS. I don't know if he can do it exactly the same way in the CS. I I, I don't know if he can it, or if he's going to have to extend a little longer leash to those relievers who only faced a batter or two. Yeah, that's the thing is uh, it's tough to burn two relievers in one inning like he did. And uh, maybe there are certain situations where he can still play it that way. But you're right, in a seven-game series, it's going to be a little more difficult to get away with that. Um, 
you know, and it depends on the game. But if you're going to count on Britton and Chapman at the end of games to get get you more than three outs each, you know, if you're going to bring Britton in in the seventh and try to get him through an out or two in the eighth, and then bring in Chapman for a multi out save, you can get away with that here and there. But wow, you got to you got to win four games in a seven game series. So that's a little trickier to try to pull that off back to back nights. Right. That's the thing. So I see the circumstances where sometimes it's like, hey, this is the situation I want to use the guy in. I'm not going to wait because if I do. Then, you know, it may not matter in the eighth inning. Perfect example is game one, right? Like they ended up piling on, so you didn't end up having to use it actually happened kind of in both games, right? Where you didn't end up having to use all of your top guns, so you could bump up the order. You ended up scoring tack on runs and you were able to make it to the finish line no problem. Game three, it was a little dicier, especially when Britain had to, you know, go out with the ankle. But so I, I get like saying, I'm going to take care of the here and now. It's almost like you and I talk about like sometimes when you're saving your best reliever to close, but the highest leverage situation is in the seventh or eighth. Why are you doing that? Put the you know fireman in now. The flip to that, though, is some of those guys are still really capable. You know, Adam Adovino may have walked a guy, but it's not like he's not capable of getting a lefty out then, you know? And I think that's where I, I, I think it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting now based on what we saw in the DS to see how he deploys them in the CS. I agree. I think you have to get more out of Adam Adovino one way or another. You know, it's hard just to match him up against a Nelson Cruz and that's it. You're one and done. Uh, even though maybe there's a, you know, there's a, there's a tough lefty coming up next. He's going to have to get him out. So at some point throughout the seven-game series, you're going to have to stretch both him or Tommy Canely uh, in order to get four wins, in order to get through a tough seven-game series, which is tough. It's a long series. Anything can happen. Those middle three games, if it's against Houston, they're going to be home games. They're back-to-back-to-back games. That's a real test. I mean, you get an off day sandwiched around those middle three games, but that's to me is but you're going to have – in those three games, well, you can't – can't expect Britton and Chapman to get you know to go more than one inning on three straight games, and uh, you know assuming that those are all close games as well. You're going to need Adovino and Canley to get to give you a little bit more. That is also where they obviously miss Herman and Batances because those were two more arms you were going to trust in that bullpen, and you were going to very comfortably, you know, presumably go to maybe for length as well. Uh, the other interesting thing will be at this point, even though it's his podcast, we can't officially say CC is going to be on the roster. However, looks like there's a good chance you know he'll end up on the roster. He's pitched really well against the Rays this year, in particular, if the Yankees were to play them. But I wonder, you know, as much as we kind of thought about our, our man as sort of a, a postseason luxury, it, with the way the bullpen's being used and shaped up, and the couple arms you thought you were going to have that you didn't. If he's healthy enough to go, he might end up becoming a fairly important piece out of the pen in, in the ALCS. I agree because there's powerful left-handed bats on on both potential matchups. Mm. And if we're going to look at Houston, Jordan Alvarez, to me, I'd see see here's he's yours. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's what Joe Torre did yeah. with me in the 2000 Subway Series, and and my guy was Mike Piazza. For CC, I'm saying this guy. This guy's a monster. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a left-handed batter that just just owns right-handed pitching, owns all pitching. You know, you need you need a tough lefty, a veteran lefty, almost just for him. Mm. I mean, there's other lefties. If you go to Tampa, then you've got Meadows, and you can go down the list. Choi, there's definitely lefties in there that that he could match up with. But yes, it's it could be extremely important to have Sabathia, and that's. It's not a knock against some of the other lefties or, you know, the other guys, Lions, you know, Tyler yeah. Lyons that's in there. He did a nice job in the in the, in the work he had, but CC Sabathia. He's <laughs> going to the Hall of Fame. You know, and, and if you, game on the line, game five at home, Jordan Alvarez comes up, I'd have no problem going to CC in that, that spot. When you were asked about, you know, kind of Piazza by Joe Torre and you were told to focus on him, and obviously you ended up getting an enormous out against him in Game 5. It was Game 5, right? Yeah, Game 5 of the World Series when he replaced – or was it Game 4? Game 4. Game 4 because he replaced Denny Nagel with yeah. two outs in the fifth. Yeah, and you get Piazza in a critical game because, you know, Mets had won Game 3 and it's a 2-1 World Series. You get Piazza to pop out. What did you do to prepare for that matchup knowing that he was going to be your guy that series where you could come in in a spot like that in an unfamiliar role to you 
Well, you know, we don't we didn't have as much information back then as you do now, but I did know that Mike Piazza liked to spot you a strike. He would take a strike. So I knew I could probably get a lot of the plate and get a fastball that he would take for a strike. And then I also knew that it was going to be sliders from then on. And if I was going to throw another fastball, it was going to be inside to try to catch him off guard. <clears throat> and I think that's the same thing with Sabathia. You know, he's got a great slider. You know, he, he still, to this day, I think it's probably his best pitch is his slider. Even though people talk about his cutter and his changeup, his slider is still high quality in my mind. And I think that's that's what you want. He's probably got the best left-handed slider of any option that the Yankees have from the left side. You know, I hope he's okay. I think he could be very well useful for the Yankees, and especially against some of those big left-handed bats. And th- there's going to be a spot. I texted CC when he first went down. I told him, I said, look, you know, I got Mike Piazza out in the World Series in 2000 with a broke dick everything. <laughs> everything on, on my body hurt. And that's exactly what I told him. And so, <laughs> I was waiting for it to come out, Cody. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and that's, you know, and I think he appreciated that. Yeah. I think he texted me back and, he, he, you know, I there was a message in there and yeah. you know you know what cc they need you yeah they need you and you know i i really was impressed when he said i don't want to be selfish if i'm not right i'm not going to be selfish and say you know what i, I need to do this when i i know in my heart i really can't mm. so to me that's maturity yeah i, I you know it's you know I, I admire that to to the ump degree but i still think if there's any way possible you know, there, there's a place for him on that roster. I think that you're tapping into an emotion that he talked about a little bit last week with us that was huge for him because, you know, he, like you, is used to being a workhorse. You know, he's used to getting the ball in these games and thinking, oh, I'm not just going to go five. I'm not just going to go seven. I'm I'm going nine, you know. And, and even though we know at this point his presence is just as important, if not more important, than whatever he does on the field for the group, I think it's a hard adjustment for him to still appreciate his own value just being there. And so while I think he came around and and began to understand it and something he talked about that helped Brett Gardner presented him with a painting that he had commissioned for CeCe in front of the whole team before the start of the series. And I know, and C talked about it on our last episode, it meant a lot to him. You know, just to also feel like, okay, I can't be on the roster, but you guys love me and you need me. The interesting thing is, if he is healthy enough, you might get the combination of both, where it's like, yeah, man, like, you know, your presence there means more than maybe anything you do on the mound. And it's important regardless of whether you can pitch or not. But... It could be one spot. It could be one big spot like you had against Piazza, and and that could end up determining a game or a series. There's so many examples I could give you. Uh, 1996 against Texas, Juan Gonzalez was wearing out our entire pitching staff. The only guy who could really get him out late in the games was David Weathers. Yeah. (laughs) Came in and threw him a bunch of sliders and got him to swing over it, and he was the one guy that had his number. So there's always that type of hitter, and, and for me, I mean, you know, Jordan Alvarez, I'll mention it again, he just changes the whole complexion of the of the Astros lineup. And even if it's Tampa and they knock off Houston, and Austin Meadows has kind of been that guy too. He's, he's been tough on the Yankees. So there are definite power left-handed bats that it's going to be nice to have an option like a CC Sabathia. A lefty on lefty, slider, neutralize that power bat. It's there. It's always going to be there. There's always that one hitter in every series that gets hot that we can't get out and somebody has to answer the bell. It, for, it was Spike Piazza for me. It was Juan Gonzalez for David Weathers back in 1996. And uh, I guarantee you there's, there's a spot for CeCe against either one of those matchups. want to ask you about the Rays-Astros stuff, and we have some listener questions too. But before I do, David, how about, I mean, we've seen and we saw with Aaron Boone in the ALDS you know, he's going to go early to the bullpen, right? You're not necessarily, and we talk about it ad nauseum on the broadcast, that third time through the order and how much better the offensive numbers get almost universally. I mean, rarely, you know, does a guy's splits get better at that time. If you were told as a starter, like these guys maybe are, hey, I need you to, I need you to get me four great innings or five great innings, does it change the way you would go out there as a starter compared to the way the game was being played when you were pitching in the playoffs? Generally speaking, yes. You know, postseason, everything's kind of out the window because there's so much high intensity and every pitch matters so much more in the postseason. So you kind of pitch that way anyway in the postseason. But, yeah, you do. You, you let it all out, You you especially from the first inning on. And once you get through the first inning, you, you're definitely uh, – you, you pitch – 
certain situations, like the second inning or the ninth inning, like Severino pitched that bases loaded jam the other night. Mm. That was like a ninth inning sequence, you know, not giving in, 3-2 slider, you know, the, the big strikeout to end, end the inning, I think, off of Jay Cave was, was a really well-executed slider with the bases loaded. I mean, that those are the type of pitches you make in the ninth inning with the game on the line. And the second inning, you might go for a fastball and a ground ball or just try to put it in play, but... Uh, yeah, I think that's what you're, you're going to see. You're going to see you know pitchers, starting pitchers, pitch the second inning, the third inning, as if it were the seventh, eighth, or ninth inning. What would you do in October to keep yourself from being overwhelmed by the moment? Because you obviously you pitched incredibly well in the playoffs, but were, did you have any sort of you know tricks to keep yourself? I don't know, not just focused, but calm and able to execute. No, there's no one trick. There really isn't. Uh, you know, and every individual's different. Um, but the key, obviously, is the first inning, getting out of it, the first pitch, the first batter. You can't believe how relaxed you get if you can just get that first hitter out. Mm. You know, it, it's not anything you do pregame. You know, you try to stay consistent with your pregame routines. You warm up the same, whatever your routine is. You try to keep it as consistent as possible. But there's no substitute for just getting that first at- batter out, getting through that first inning. Then all of a sudden, you can relax, and all the you know, and then you. You, you have less tension in your whole body, and tension is the worst thing for a pitcher because if you grip the ball a little tighter, they call it, you know, obviously squeeze it, squeeze yeah. in the baseball, but that, that changes everything because there's less movement on your pitches, there's less location on your pitches. So, you know, being able to relax is the key, and the only way you can relax is have some success early in the game. It's funny you say that because Troy Benjamin, our friend and producer at Yes, he always says, what I need to see is my pitcher retire the opposing team in the first when he talks about watching a playoff game, so I was like, "That's what I need to see to settle in," because there is something about that, right? Just getting through that first inning, we're like, oh, "Okay, it's a baseball game. Let's go." Yeah, well, that's what the opener strategy is centered around: is that in the first inning, scoring is about ten percent higher on average, and that, that because the best headers are usually at the top of the lineup, more more lineups are geared with. You know, not so much your typical leadoff hitter, more like a George Springer type leading off. One pitch, one home run. There's a lot of stress, a lot of power at the top of the orders now compared to years past when you had maybe a a little slap hitter that had speed (laughs) to try to get on base, you know, like a Mickey Rivers. Yeah. You know, those days are kind of gone, you know, and the best hitters are at the top of the order. And the first inning is always the toughest, and uh, that's why there's 10% higher scoring in the first inning. Speaking of openers, we saw the Rays get to a Game 5 by using one in Game 4. I think, you know, a lot of people probably thought, oh, you know, the Astros, who are just a behemoth of a team, are going to just mow down Tampa. Obviously, that didn't happen, and we this will release Thursday morning before Game 5 is played between these teams. I, I'm, how much of a shot do you give the Rays to finish this off and upset the Astros in Houston? Anything can happen in a Game 5. Uh you know, the thing that impressed me about the Rays all year long is they just have a very, as deep as the Yankees lineup is, that's about as deep as the Rays pitching staff is. They just have a lot of arms. And no matter whether they're using an opener strategy or whoever they're running out there, you know, that they've just come with one arm after another. That's The numbers bear it out. They had some of the best run for run prevention in the major leagues this year across the board. Uh, they have a lot of great arms and a lot of different weapons they can come at you with, and they, they can shut you down. We saw that late in the year when the Yankees went down to Tampa and just they, they looked flat. Everybody was saying, well, the games are, are meaningless, and the Yankees, well, they'll turn it on in the playoffs. But if you remember those games – you know, in that last week in, in Tampa, that was pitching. Yeah. That was the Rays just shut them out. It wasn't like the Yankees weren't trying. It was. Just, I give the credit to a lot of quality pitches that I see, and that you know they, they've been doing it all year. Tampa deserves credit. It's under the radar. Not a lot of people see it or know it because it's a different strategy they use, and they've had their share of in, inju- injuries as well. But Blake Snell's back. We saw him close out the game. Yeah. Any of these pitchers? I mean, they're they're twelve deep. Any of those guys can pitch anywhere. Open. Close. I mean, they really are a very deep pitching staff and very underrated. And, you know, I think one of the other things that seemed to be the case the entire year when it came to matchups with the Rays is close games, right? I mean, if you think about the game, even if you think about that four-game series in uh, St. Pete right before the All-Star break where the first two go to extra innings, the next two are one-run games, at least for a huge chunk of the game. That's why I – now, Houston's at home – they have Garrett Cole on the mound, who just delivered one of the great performances in postseason history. They have the better lineup. They should win. 
and they are the favorites, and rightfully so, to win this game. However, Tampa Bay plays close games, and in a close game, in a in a game five situation, you could end up, you know, stealing a win. That I mean, especially when you think about the arms that Houston will go to after Cole compared to the arms the Rays will go to after Glass. Now, I do think it's a significant advantage for Tampa Bay. You know, when you talk about some of the best managers, especially the new young managers in the game, you know, AJ Hinch is great. We talk about Craig Council in Milwaukee, the things he's done. Kevin Cash, yeah, in Tampa is really good. Deserves a lot of credit. I think Aaron Boone should probably win the Manager of the Year award, but I think Kevin Cash should get right in there with him as yeah. well. It's time he got credit where credit is due, and uh, he's doing a fantastic job down there. Very progressive manager, knows his pitching staff very well, uh, makes, seems to make all the right moves at the right time, especially with who to bring in, who to take out, and who to start, who to close with. Very flexible He's shown confidence in his entire pitching staff, and it's paid off for him this year. Do you buy, let's say the Astros win, and now obviously Cole wouldn't be able to start till game three. How, I mean, how happy should that make the Yankees? Is it a significant, does it play a significant role in how you'd feel about facing the Astros that you wouldn't see Cole till a game three and Verlander till a game two? Yeah, you know, I, theoretically, yes, you should. You know, you, you would think, you know, if you're staring at Verlander and Cole in game one and two in Houston, well, that's a tall order. And then that puts a lot of pressure on you to win three straight, similar to 2017, which is exactly the way it played out. Um, now, all of a sudden, you know, Verlander, yeah, boy, you really had to push him. Is that going to have a residual effect? Now Cole's got to pitch game five. That gives you, I think, a better chance to steal one of those first two games, if it's Houston and those first two games on the road. Then you flip the script on the home field advantage. You know, and that, to me, was always the key in a seven-game series on the road can you just steal one game? Mm. Can you split those first two games on the road, then get it home and get a lead and, and go from there? And, and we, you know, we saw that in 2017 where both teams held serve. Um, that's a big deal, I think, potentially for the Yankees. I mean, obviously anything can happen. Nobody's got a crystal ball, whatever you want to say. But, yeah, I think this does help. Obviously helps the Yankees that you don't have to face a well-rested Verlander and Cole lined up waiting for you. In their home ballpark. Yeah, the well-rested part is key, too, I think. You're putting an extra taxing postseason start on their arms. One of them on three days rest, which didn't go well, either. David, we have some listener questions for you. One of them, the Onassis Cabrera question was about Hicks on the ALCS roster. We did already get to that. Lauren Lopez wants to know, what's your favorite stadium to visit and what's your least favorite? Well, you know, I, to me, Chicago is the great American city, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Wrigley Field is just fantastic. You know, just from the historical aspect of it, and it's so, so unique, you know, that old-time ballpark, you can't help but feel it. When you walk in there as a player, that wow, you know th- this has got some history. So, and it's a great town to go out in too. So, Chicago, <laughs> Chicago is you know is, is the great American city in my mind. And the least part, yeah, you don't have to go there if you don't want to. Well, um, it's you know it's it was tough. I mean, going back years, probably the least favorite park was Candlestick Park, mm. just because it was so cold there. I mean, we wore parkas on the bench in July and. It really was very unusual, you know, the old... the old uh, Coldest winter yes. I ever had was a summer in San Francisco. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's true. It really was. At Candlestick Park, it, that was true. A little different than Condlestick Park. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, it had, you know, I just, it just matched up with the name, so it, it seemed, <laughs> seemed to work. And Juan Marichal, too. Oh, I love it. All right. Uh, Nikki Brooker wants to know what your favorite postseason memory as a Yankee was, or is. You know, my favorite postseason memory was uh, 96, winning the World Series. It was game six. There was a full moon over the stadium. Joe Girardi hit that famous triple off of Greg Maddox. And then we're taking the victory lap around after we won at home. And there were police horses on, you know, on the field. It almost felt like, uh, you know, back to the 70s when you saw the, the fans used to storm the fields. Back when you see some the of the, home the run. Shambliss home run, some of the highlights of the 70s, I felt like that because as a kid, I grew up watching that. I was a Royals fan, so I remember watching the Yankees celebrate like that so many years. And here I was running around. It was like we were running on air. And, uh, you know, there's, there was horse manure everywhere. We were stepping in it. <laughs> Nobody cared. A couple guys slipped right in a big pile of horse manure, fell right on their butt. <laughs> 
Wade Boggs hops up on the police horse. I mean, it was just surreal. That whole feeling was surreal. And then, you know, Joe Torrey, that was, you know, the off the field in human interest stories. Frank, yeah. Frank Torrey had the heart transplant during the World Series. He had lost a... His other brother, Rocco, shortly before the World Series. So there was so much going on in 96, and we kind of felt like we stole that one from the Braves. They were probably a better team. I think arguably in 96 the Braves were better. We kind of stole it from them. I'm sure they still feel that way too. Yeah, yeah that's, I'm sure. That's one that's not easy to swallow. Um, Anthony Salerno says, Mets fan here, would you want to manage you'd look good in blue and orange? You know, that's a simple question. Everybody asks me that question. I, I'm not actively campaigning to manage, but, yeah. you know, last year somebody asked me that question. It was a reporter. Hey, um, you know, and to me it's a simple answer. If somebody asked you to interview for the manager of the New York An- Yankees, the answer is yes. And the same goes for the Mets. If somebody comes to me and says, hey, would you like to interview for to be manager of the New York Mets? I'm not going to say no. I mean, right. That's just, there's 30 big league jobs out there. It's a very prestigious, you know, opportunity. It's just not something that you say no to. So if somebody thinks highly enough of me to be a part of the interview process, yeah, I, I don't. I don't see how you say no to that. Is it something you've thought about, like career path wise, that you could be interested in someday, David? Over, managing over the last five years, more and more, because I actually, you know, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm kind of been rejuvenated by all the analytics. I love the high speed cameras and the spin rate, and some of the things in pitch design that's going on nowadays. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's important to have a collaborative effort with regard to the lineup, everything. I think there's really smart people involved that should be involved. But during the game and in-game management, I think more ex-pitchers probably understand bullpen management than ex-position players. Yeah. And, you know, in years past, it was always a pitcher would be pigeonholed into being a pitching coach only. There's a few exceptions there, Bud Black, Roger Craig. There's been a few along the way. But I think, you know, if that's the most important decisions for a manager to make, where everything else is collaborative, lineups are handed down through analytics, in-game management, I think pitchers, I think I have a pretty good feel for that. That's kind of my wheelhouse. Yeah. Who's ready today? Who's not? Who? Which relievers to use in high leverage situations? You know, I, I, that's something that, that I think is changed so much in the dynamic of the game that I think more ex-pitchers probably should be considered for a manager job. Well, for the record, I, um, would hate if we ever lost you at yes, but you'd be terrific at it. You well, really would. I, I appreciate it, but you know, as I said, it just—it was a simple, honest question. Yeah, and yeah. an honest answer. Yeah. Like, hey, you just don't say no if somebody comes knocking on your door and says, "Hey, we, we'd like to interview you for, for to be a manager of a major league team." A hundred percent. On the flip side <laughs> of things, Trent Marciano's—that'll still be our final question—asked both of us, "What are the best and worst parts about working in TV?" I don't know if there is a worse part. I don't know either. I was thinking about it when I wrote when I saw the question, wrote it down. I don't think there's nothing that's like people could say like, oh, you know, the travel, which is, yeah. you know, I, I guess you'd say, well, when you're working in TV, you're working holidays, nights, weekends, stuff that maybe doesn't align with the people in your social circle as much. But there's also an energy you get from not having a sort of, you know stationary routine right like and getting to see these cities yeah there's pros and cons all the way around it's a life that that i've lived for my entire adult life so i certainly i could say you know what you get you get burned out a little bit here and there with the travel uh some days you wake up in a hotel room and you're disoriented what what city am i in Uh, (laughs) oh yeah milwaukee i'm okay i'm okay where am i going for breakfast but um the best part about being in television is that when you put your head on your pillow at night, you can sleep. Yeah. I mean, even though yeah, we care, I know we care yeah. about the team. You know, yeah. we, I think we both do a good job of being objective and yes. trying to tell the truth. Yes. Uh, but at the same time, when the Yankees are playing well, it's good for all of us. Yep. I mean, we get to know these guys. Of course, we want to see them play well. You know, it's not like we're up there pulling against them. But when we put our head on our pillow at night, at least when I do, it's not the same emotional investment as if you're on that team or sure. managing or coaching. I mean, those guys, Larry Rothschild lives and dies it. He gets up the next day thinking about every pitch the night before. I get up thinking about, you know, hey, where am I going to go to lunch in Milwaukee? You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so from the television standpoint, it, it, it's definitely less stressful than it would be from a coaching standpoint. But, you know, it's it's fantastic to be able to, to get that energy, yeah. to be able to, to do these games and, 
Especially when they're good games, when you get a great call, like those Minnesota series. I mean, and just the energy of that series, right. Aaron Judge hits one in Seattle, almost out of the stadium. <laughs> I mean, there's certain games you just will never forget. Yes, that's what I, what I love about it is the energy and the rhythm of the game. You know, that's what I, that's what I love, you know. I love the, the camaraderie and the teamwork and, like, feeling like, all right, you know, me and you and Meredith and, you know, Bill Bolin and John Moore and, you know, our, our entire crew, you know, Luke Miller, Mike Mevitt, like you, you come with a team to try and like do this. And it makes, I always say like you prepare as if you're in a silo and then you get to the performance and you realize, oh, I have all this help. And it makes it so much easier to perform because you've prepared, like you're going to have to perform alone. And then all of a sudden you don't, but the thing and that's a cool feeling. That's obviously not exclusive to broadcasting, that feeling of being on a team. But the thing I love is just the energy and the rhythm of the game, the way uh, you yeah, feel. Yeah, I it. agree completely. And we get all the credit because we're the ones that people hear call the games. But the thing I, that's really been a revelation for me is is how the guys behind the scene, all the people you just mentioned, you know, whether it's a producer, director, graphics, anybody, everybody, how much time they have to put in to setting up to being there so early and how much pride they take in their work to me has really been, you know, something I didn't know as a player. You, yeah. know, you just say, oh, yeah, well, those guys are in the truck, you know, and you, know, you don't really know what they do or you don't really think about it all that much. But on this side of the ball, seeing how much effort and work and pride they put into it, even the guys in Stanford doing the pre- and post-game yeah. show. Jared Boschnack. Who, how funny is this? He was literally just calling me now. How funny is that? <laughs> yeah, those, guys, those guys live and die with it. They, they put in so many hours and have so much pride in their work. The, you know, and it shows. Yeah. It shows in every every production the Yankees put out, the Yes Network puts out, whether it's the pregame show, postgame show, Yankees magazine. You know, if I, if you and I say something on the air about Mickey Mantle doing something in 1957, Mike Medved's got it, or Luke's got it like that. It's unbelievable. And the, you're going to see it on air. You know, I'm, it's, it's just remarkable how good they are at what they do and how much pride they take in, in their jobs. And I, and I really think it does come off on the Yes Network. 100%. I couldn't agree more. It makes it fun. David, thank you for doing this, man. My pleasure. We uh, we Thanks to David Cohn. Hey, R2C2 doesn't stop these playoffs. Every Thursday, you get a new episode, so make sure you're listening, rating, reviewing, subscribing. Hey, either way, it's going to be a fun ALCS. It's going to be great. Uh, I hope CC's in there. Me too. Me too. And we will be back next Thursday, so make sure you keep it locked in. Go Yanks, and thanks for listening. Peace. Peace.